You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritual, Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy, an eyewitness view of occult history, selected and introduced by Christopher Bamford. And this is the last lecture, Lecture 21, entitled The Emergence of the Anthroposophical Movement, given in Dornach on June 15, 1923. I have given you some idea of the forces that determined the first two periods of the anthroposophical movement. But in order to create a basis on which to deal with what happened in the third stage, I still wish to deal with a number of phenomena from the first two. The first period, up until approximately 1907, can be described as being concerned with developing the fundamentals for a science of the spirit in lectures, lecture cycles, and in subsequent work undertaken by others. This period concludes approximately with the publication of my title An Outline of Esoteric Science. Esoteric science actually appeared some one and a half years later, but the publicizing of its essential content undoubtedly falls into this first period. Some hope was definitely justified in this period, up to 1905 or 1906, that the content of anthroposophy might become the purpose of the Theosophical Society's existence. During this time it would have been an illusion not to recognize that leading personalities in the Theosophical Society, and Annie Besant in particular, had a very primitive understanding of modern scientific method. Nevertheless, despite the amateurish stamp this gave to all her books, there was a certain sum of wisdom mostly unprocessed, in the people who belonged to the society. This became more marked as the focus of the Theosophical Society gradually moved to London and slowly began to feed, in a manner of speaking, on Oriental wisdom. It sometimes led to the most peculiar ideas, but if we ignore the fact that such ideas were sometimes stretched so far that they lost all similarity to their original and true meaning, such books as Annie Passant's title Ancient Wisdom, title The Progress of Mankind, and even title Christianity, transmit something which, although passed down by traditional means, originated in ancient sources of wisdom. On the other hand, one must always be aware that in the modern world, beyond these circles, there was no interest whatsoever in real spiritual research. The reality was simply that the possibility of kindling an interest in a truly modern science of the spirit existed only among those who found their way into this group of people. Yet within this first period in particular there was a great deal to overcome. Many people were working towards something but it was in part a very egoistic and shallow striving. But even such superficial societies frequently called themselves theosophical. 
One need only think, for instance, of the theosophical branches that spread widely throughout Central Europe, in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, which possessed only an exceedingly anemic version of theosophical society tenets, impregnated with all kinds of foolish occult views. One person who was very active in such societies was Franz Hartmann, but the kind of profound spirit and deep seriousness that existed in these shallow societies will become obvious to you if I describe the cynical character of this particular leader. The Theosophical Society was at one time judged in a dispute in connection with an American called Judge about whether or not certain messages he had distributed originated with persons who really had reached a higher stage of initiation, the so-called masters. Judge had distributed these, in quotes, Mahatma letters in America. While they were both at the headquarters in India, Judge said he wanted some letters from the masters in order to gain credibility in America, so that he could say he had been given a mission by initiates. Franz Hartmann recounted how he had offered to write some Mahatma letters for Judge, and the latter had replied that this would not permit him to claim their authenticity. They were supposed to fly toward you uh, through the air. They originated in a magical way and then landed on your head, and that is what he had to be able to say. Judge was a very small fellow, Hartmann told us, and so he said to him, Quote, stand on the floor, and I will stand on a chair, and then I will drop the letters on your head. Close quote. Then Judge could say with a clear conscience that he was distributing letters that had landed on his head clean out of the air. That is an extreme example of things that are not at all rare in the world. I do not want to waste your time with these shallow societies. I only want to point out that the close proximity of the anthroposophical movement to the theosophical movement made it necessary for the former to defend itself against modern scientific thinking during its first period. I do not know whether those who joined the anthroposophical movement later as scientists and have observed anthroposophy during its more developed third stage have gained sufficient insight into the fact that a critical assessment of modern scientific thinking took place in a very specific way during the first period of the anthroposophical movement. I will, give only, I will only give instances, because this process occurred in a number of different areas. But these examples will show you how the theosophical movement was strongly influenced by the deference to so-called scientific authority, which I described as particularly characteristic of modern education. Annie Besant, for instance, tried to use in her books all kinds of quotes from contemporary science, such as Weismann's theory of heredity, which bore no relevance to the science of the spirit. She used them as if they provided some sort of evidence. If you recall, at the time when we were in a position to start a center for the anthroposophical movement in Munich, many homeless souls were already organized, in the sense that they belonged to various societies. Of course, centers for the movement had begun to develop gradually in Berlin, Munich, Stuttgart, Kassel, Dusseldorf, Köln, Hamburg, Hanover and Leipzig, and in Vienna as well as in Prague. 
When we were establishing the branch in Munich, it became necessary to assess critically the various larger and smaller groups then in existence. One group called the Ketterl, consisting of extremely scholarly people, was very much concerned with providing proofs from natural science for the claims made on behalf of the science of the spirit. If anthroposophy spoke about the etheric body, they would say that science has recognized this or that struct has recognized this or that structure for atoms and molecules. Their formula and definitions and so on were applied not to processes of the spectrum or electromagnetism, but to processes in the etheric or astral field. There was nothing we could do about that. The whole thing dissolved more or less amicably. In the end, we no longer had any links with these investigations. Not so very different were the efforts of a Dr. Huber Schleiden, who played an important role in the Theosophical Society. He was a close friend of Blavatsky and was an editor of titled Sphinx for a long time. He too was obsessed with proving what he felt was theosophical subject matter by means of natural scientific thinking. He took me to his home a little way outside Hanover. It was perhaps half an hour by train. He spent the entire half hour describing the motion of atoms with his index fingers. Yes, it has to happen in this way and that way and then we have the answer. The atoms move in one incarnation, and then the wave motion continues through the spiritual worlds. Then it changes, and that is the next incarnation. He calculated the passage of souls through various incarnations in the same way modern physicists calculate light in terms of wavelengths. A special version of this way of thinking was evident in the debate about the permanent atom, which took place in the Theosophical Society over a long period. This permanent atom was something awful, but was taken incredibly seriously. For the people who felt the full weight of modern science postulated that while the physical body of course decomposes, a single atom remains, passes through the time between death and the new birth, and appears in the new incarnation. That is the permanent atom which passes through incarnations. This may appear funny to you today, but you simply cannot understand the seriousness with which these things were pursued, specifically in the first period, and the difficulty that existed in responding to the challenge. What is the point of theosophy if it cannot be proved scientifically? During that conversation in the train, the point was forcefully made that things have to be presented in a manner that will allow a matriculated schoolboy to understand theosophy in the same way that he understands logic. That was the thrust of my companion's argument. Then we arrived at his home, and he took me into the loft, and up there, I have to repeat that he was an exceedingly kind, pleasant, intelligent man, in other words, a sympathetic old gentleman, were very complicated wire constructions. Uh, one of the models represented the atom of a physical entity. The, second, the next model, which was even more complex, represented the atom of something etheric. The third model, still more complex, was an astral atom. If you pick up certain books by Ledbetter, a leading figure in the Theosophical Society, you will find such models in grandiose form. Atomism flourished nowhere as greatly as among those who joined our ranks from the Theosophical Society. 
And when younger members such as Dr. Kalisko and others are engaged in the fight against the atom in our research institute in Stuttgart, we might well recall that certain people at that time would not have known how to get from one incarnation to the next without at least one permanent atom. This is something of an image of the way the strong authority of so-called natural scientific thinking exerted its influence in these circles. They were unable to conceive of any other valid way of thinking than the natural scientific one. So there was no real understanding in this quarter either. Only as the anthroposophical movement entered its second stage did these atomistic endeavors gradually subside, and there was a gradual transition to the subject matter that continued to be cultivated in the anthroposophical movement. Every time I was in Munich, for instance, it was possible to give a lecture designed more for the group that gathered round a great friend of Blavatsky's. Things were easier there because a genuine inner striving existed. Within our own ranks, too, there was a call at that time to justify the content of anthroposophy using the current natural scientific approach. It was less radical, nevertheless, than the demands made by external critics today. A large number of you heard Dr. Blumel's lecture today. Imagine if someone had responded by saying that everything Dr. Blumel wrote spoke about was of no personal concern, that he did not believe it, did not recognize it, and did not want to test it. Someone else might say, See whether it is accurate. Examine it with your reason and your soul faculties. The first person says, It is no business of mine, be it right or wrong. I do not want to become involved with that. But I call on Dr. Blumel to go to a psychology laboratory and there, using my psychological methods, I will examine whether or not he is a mathematician. That is, of course, piffle of the first order. But it is exactly the demand made today by outside critics. Sadly, it is quite possible today to talk pure nonsense that goes undetected. Even those who are upset by it fail to notice that it is pure nonsense. They believe that it is only maliciousness or something similar because they cannot imagine the possibility of someone who talks pure nonsense acquiring the role of a scientific spokesman simply as a result of social standing. That is the extent to which our spiritual life has become confused. The kind of things I am explaining here must be understood by anyone who wants to grasp the position of the anthroposophical movement. Well, undeterred by all that, the most important human truths, the most important cosmic truths, had to be made public during the first stage. My esoteric science represents a sort of compendium of everything that had been put forward in the anthroposophical movement until that point. Our intention was always a concrete and never an abstract one, because we never attempted to do more than could be achieved in the given circumstances. Let me quote the following as evidence. We established a journal, Lucifer Gnosis, right at the outset of the anthroposophical movement. 
At first it was called Lucifer. Then a Viennese journal called Gnosis wanted to merge with it. My sole intention in calling it Lucifer with Gnosis was to express the practical union of the two journals. Of course, that was completely unacceptable to Huber Schleiden, for instance, who thought this would indicate an unnatural union. Well, I was not particularly bothered, so we called it Lucifer Gnosis, with a hyphen. People were very sharp-witted, and they were keeping a close eye on us at that time. Of course, we started with a very small number of subscribers, but it began to grow at a very fast pace, relatively speaking, and we never really ran at a deficit, because we only ever printed approximately as many copies as we were able to sell. Once an issue had been printed, the copies were sent to my house in large parcels. Then my wife and I put the wrappers around them. I addressed them, and then each of us took a washing basket and carried the whole lot to the post office. We found that this worked quite well. I wrote and held lectures while my wife organized the whole society, but without a secretary. So we did that all on our own and never attempted more than could be managed on a practical level. We did not even, for example, take larger washing baskets than we could just manage. When the number of subscribers grew, we simply made an extra journey. When we had been engaged in this interesting activity for some time, Lucifer Gnosis ceased publication. Not because it had to, for it had many more subscribers than it needed, but because I no longer had time to write. The demands of my lecturing activity and of the spiritual administration of the society in general began to take up a lot of time. To cease publication was a natural consequence of never attempting more than could be managed on a practical level, one step at a time. This belongs to the conditions that govern the existence of a spiritual society. To build far-reaching ideals on phrases, setting up programs, is the worst thing that can happen to a spiritual society. The work in this first period was such that between 07 and 09, the foundations of a science of the spirit appropriate to the modern age were put in place. Then we come to the second phase, which essentially concluded our attempt to come to grips with natural science. The theologians had not yet made their presence felt. They were still seated so firmly in the saddle everywhere that they were simply not bothered. When the issue of the natural sciences had been dealt with, we were able to approach our other task. This was the debate over the Gospels, over Genesis, the Christian tradition as a whole, Christianity as such. The thread had already been laid out entitled Christianity as Mystical Fact, which appeared in 1902, but the elaboration, as it were, of an anthroposophical understanding of Christianity was essentially the task of the second stage up to approximately 1914. As a consequence, I gave lecture cycles on the various parts of the Christian tradition in Hamburg, Kassel, Berlin, Basel, Bern, Munich, and Stuttgart. That was also when, for instance, title the spiritual guidance of the individual and humanity was drawn up. It was, then, essentially the time in which the Christian side of anthroposophy was worked out, following on from the historical tradition of Christianity. This period also included what I might call the 
first expansion of anthroposophy into the artistic field, with performances of the mystery dramas in Munich. That, too, took place against the background of never wanting to achieve more than circumstances allowed. Also during this time, those events occurred that led to the exclusion of anthroposophy from the Theosophical Society, a fact that was actually of no great significance to the former, given that it had followed its own path from the beginning. Those who wanted to come along were free to do so. From the outset, anthroposophy did not concern itself with the spiritual content that came from the Theosophical Society, but practical coexistence became increasingly difficult as well. At the beginning there was a definite hope that circumstances, some of which at least I have described, would allow the real theosophical movement, which had come together in the theosophical society, to become truly anthroposophical. The circumstances that made such a hope appear justified included the serious disappointment about the particular methods of investigation pursued by the Theosophical Society, specifically among those people who possessed a higher level of discrimination. And I have to say that when I arrived in London, both the first and second times, I experienced how its leaders were basically people who adopted a very skeptical attitude toward one another, who felt themselves to be on very insecure ground, which, however, they did not want to leave, because they did not know where to look for security. There were many disappointed people who had great reservations, particularly among the leaders of the Theosophical Society. The peculiar change that took place in Ani Besant from, say, 1900 to 1907 is an important factor in the subsequent course of events in the Theosophical Society. She possessed a certain tolerance to begin with, I believe she never really understood the phenomenon of anthroposophy, but she accepted it, and at the beginning even defended against the rigid dogmatists its right to exist. That is how we must describe it, for that is how it was. But there is something I must say, which I would also urge members of the Anthroposophical Society to consider very seriously. Certain personal aspirations purely personal sympathies and antipathies are absolutely irreconcilable with a spiritual society of this kind. Someone, for instance, begins to idolize someone else for whatever underlying inner reasons. He or she will not acknowledge whatever compulsion it is, and sometimes it can be an intellectual compulsion that drives him to do it but he begins to weave an artificial astral aura around the individual he wants to idolize. The latter then becomes advanced. If he wants to make an especially telling remark, he will say, Oh, that individual is aware of three or four uh, previous lives on earth and even spoke to me about my earlier earth lives. That person knows a lot. And this is precisely what leads to a spiritual interpretation of something that is human all too human, to use the expression from Nietzsche. It would be sufficient to say, quote, I will not deny that I like that person, close quote. Then everything would be fine, even in esoteric societies. Max Zeiling, for instance, was very amusing in certain ways, 
particularly when he played the piano in that effervescent way of his, and he was amusing to have tea with, and so on. All would have been well if people had admitted that they liked that. That would have been more sensible than idolizing him in the way the Munich group did. You see, all these things are in direct contradiction to the conditions under which such a society should exist. And the prime example of someone who fell prey to this kind of thing is Annie Besant. For example, and I prefer to speak about these things by quoting facts, a name cropped up on one occasion. I did not bother much with the literature produced by the Theosophical Society, and so I became acquainted with Bhagavan Das's name only when a thick typewritten manuscript arrived one day. The manuscript was arranged in two columns, with text on the left side and a blank on the right. A covering letter from Bhagavan Das said that he wanted to discuss with various people the subject matter he intended to reveal to the world through the manuscript. Well, the anthroposophical movement was already so widespread at that time that I did not manage to read the manuscript immediately. That Bhagavan Das was a very esoteric man, a person who drew his inspiration from profound spiritual sources, that was approximately the view that people associated with Annie Besant spread about him. His name was on everyone's lips. So I decided to have a look at the thing. I was presented with a horrendously amateurish confusion of Fichtian philosophy, Hegelian philosophy, and Schopenhauer's philosophy. Everything was mixed up together without the slightest understanding. And the whole thing was held together by, in quotes, self, and in quotes, not self, like an endlessly repeated tune. The idolization of Bhagavan Das was based purely on personal considerations. Such things demonstrate how the personal element is introduced into impulses that should be objective. The first step on the slippery slope was taken with the appearance of this phenomenon, which became increasingly strong from about 1905 onward. Everything else was basically a consequence of that. Spiritual societies must avoid such courses of action, particularly by their leaders. Otherwise, they will of necessity slide down the slippery slope. That is indeed what happened. Then there was the absurd tale connected with Alcott's death, referred to as the Master's Nomination, which really represented the beginning of the end for the Theosophical Society. That could still be smoothed over, at least, by saying that such foolishness was introduced into the society by particular people, even if they were acting on the basis of certain principles. It was, however, followed by the Ledbetter affair, the details of which I do not want to discuss just now. And then came the discovery of the boy who was to be brought up as Christ or to become Christ, and so on. And when people who did not want to be involved in these absurd matters refused to accept them, they were simply expelled. Well, the anthroposophical movement followed its set course throughout the whole of this business, and our inner development was not affected by these events in any way. That has to be made absolutely clear. It was really a matter of supreme indifference, just as I was not especially surprised to hear recently that Ledbetter has become an old Catholic bishop in his old age. There was no sense of direction, and everything was going topsy-turvy. 
Indeed, there is no particular need to change one's personal relationship with these people. Two years ago, a gentleman who had delivered a lecture at the Munich Congress in 1907 approached me with the old cordial spirit. He still looked the same, but in the meantime he had become an old Catholic archbishop. He was not wearing the garments, but that is what he was. It must not be forgotten that the stream we have been describing also contained precisely those souls who were searching most intensively for a link between the human soul and the spiritual world. We are not being honest about the course of modern culture if these contrasts are not made absolutely clear. Ellipsis, that is the end of Lecture 21 and the end of this lecture collection entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy by Rudolf Steiner.